Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Kate fakaronga mai koe ki to tato el hori hori ki tareo irirangi o Aotearoa. I'm Alison Balance, and thanks for your company on this edition of Our Changing World. Now, we're going to explore the idea that eating is about much more than just hunger. Mei Ping is at the University of Otago. She studies human senses and how these influence our eating behaviour. Our senses are intimately connected with our brain, and Mei thinks some of us may be more likely to overeat because we get so much pleasure from it. We eat because we really like food. But for others, food might just be a necessary fuel. She has a Marsden grant to look at the idea that why we eat, and especially why we overeat, might be due to unique sensory fingerprints. I'm off to the Food Sciences Department to join May and PhD student Rachel Genius to find out more and to give my taste buds a bit of a workout. We think everyone has this unique sensory world, which we do, because we have different sensitivities with our vision, our taste, our smell. So that's present to us a very unique sensory world. But how does this different sensory world drive our behaviour? But I'm particularly interested in eating behaviour. So what makes us eat what we eat and how much we eat, yeah. So what are the senses that are involved in eating? Actually, all five senses that we have, yeah. So imagine that we have a dish in front of us and we enjoy the appearance and uh, when we put the food in our mouths, we enjoy the flavour which comes from smell and taste. And sometimes we even hear the crunching sound and texture, of course. So all five senses are involved in eating. And I think that's, that's one of our hypotheses, is people have this relativity across those senses. So some people might be more visual dominant, and some people might be more smell dominant. So that could be one of the reasons that we eat so differently. Also, there is a, an interaction between your senses. So as May said, you can have like um, a main sense that is really developed. But also you have this interaction between your olfaction, your tasting and um, your touch senses. And so, yeah, all of that can interact. And so you can perceive something really easily, for example. But it's not because of only one sense, but yeah, because of the combination of all of that. What we try to do is to link in sensory perception to the reward system, because we believe food, particularly in t- today's food environment, food has become really palatable and really accessible. So lots of people, they are um, more susceptible to these changes in the food world. So lots of people, you see them uh, snack a lot or they eat a lot during main meals. Um, But uh, opposed to them, uh, some people, they don't snack that much. One way to think is to do with self-control or um, something like that. But another possibility is the sensory differences. And maybe they influence our reward to food very differently. Some people may hold a great reward value of food, but some people may not. 
So I might really enjoy food just for the pleasure of eating it as opposed to you and you just might go, I eat when I'm hungry. Yeah, that's exactly right. So we, we say there's two types of eating. One type of eating is eating for homeostasis, um, so kind of eating for survival. Um, but the other type of eating is eating for pleasure. What we hypothesize here is um, we believe people more similar in terms of eating for survival. But the differences in our eating exist in eating for pleasure, what we call hedonic eating. How are you going about testing this? What are you doing? Yeah, so as you can imagine, we, our testing is a huge testing setup because we are interested in human senses, we're interested in the cognitive factors involved in eating, and we're also interested in the neurological basis of those differences. So what we're trying to set up is to test this whole process. So start with... Um, the sensory sensitivities to profile a person's sensitivity of different senses. And um, so once we get a good understanding of that person's sensory sensitivities, we move on to cognitive responses. And we're actually setting up using neuroimaging tools to look at how food would hit the different spot for different people. And then we translate this research into behavioral research as well. So we put actual food there and look at people's choices. And then we can relate to those choices back to the data that we had, like the sensory data and neuroimaging data that we had before. Rachel and May have agreed to run me through some of the experiments. Um, The idea is to tease out how important each sense is. First up, smell. What we have here is a a standard smell test called a sniffing sticks. How we do the test is present the stick to the participants. So I'm going to smell it? Yes, please. Yep. Yep. So can I actually smell anything? The trick is there might not even be a smell. Which one has a smell? Which one has a smell to you? Well, I didn't get any smell from the first one. (laughs) So what's the threshold at which I can smell something? Next, Mm -hmm. can I identify the scent? How would you describe that smell? Um, I would have described that as slightly floral. Floral, that's a very good description. And And as the smell gets stronger... Does it change? More of a sharper floral. Yeah, they are actually the same compound. It's just a a more concentrated. It might have changed the smell quality to some people. So Mm. some people may describe this as fishy. I smell fishy in this one. (laughs) So my rose is someone else's fish. Curious. I'm just interested, because I actually don't think I've got a great sense of smell. What about you? Um, I believe I have a good sense of smell, but I'm having a cold in the studio. Ah, so colds um, definitely get in the way, don't they? Definitely. So some people, they would say they lose their appetite when they have a cold. It's because of, simply because of block the nose. Because mm. if you can't smell, there's no flavour in food. So all the flavour in food actually comes from sense of smell. So a word with that smell would be a little bit boring, yeah. I think it's something that older people complain about because they lose their sense of smell and they say, oh, food just doesn't taste good anymore. That's, that's correct. So uh, some emerging research suggests that smell is actually a very fascinating thing because um, it actually has a close relevance to lots of neurological diseases as well. A decline in smell could be uh, related to early uh, symptoms with 
Parkinson's and um, Alzheimer's. Yeah, because if you have a degeneration in your nervous system, so the connection between your olfactory receptor, for example, or your test receptor and uh, the brain, so this the connection is the nerves and see if your nerves are damaged or... Yeah, if you have this degeneration of that during the time, it can block the connection between your receptors and, and the brain, and so you don't have the perception of it. Is there a genetic component to smell as well? If my mother has a poor sense of smell, does that increase the chances that I'll have a poor sense of smell? It's a very interesting question. We don't know so much to answer your question yet, but there's definitely studies suggesting genetic basis for smelling some compounds. A typical example would be coriander. So some people really don't like the taste, or the, we call taste, which is the flavor of coriander. So some people love coriander and describe it as fresh. The smell is fresh, it's, it's citrusy. But like people like me find coriander has a very uh, strong and unpleasant flavor or smell that sometimes have been described as soapy, as a stink box, as mold, uh, all sorts of things. So that has a genetic um, basis for that. Since you bring up genetics, we do have a taste compound for you to try to see if you are a genetically determined the prop taster or not. This compound is called prop. If you are a super taster, you will find it very bitter. No, I find it completely neutral. Yeah. So that tastes like water to me, but some people would find that really bitter. Myself, yeah. Oh. I Just before you came, I tried a little bit. Yeah. Rachel made me try a little bit. <laughs> this is super bitter for me. What does it taste like to you? I would say that I'm in between, so I can taste that it's bitter, but it's not super bitter for me, so that's okay. I can drink it, but for example, May, she cannot keep it in her mouth because it's too strong, and for you, it doesn't taste like anything. Now, I've heard of super tasters, and they are super sensitive. Uh, yes, that's, that's a concept that we held for a long time, that we believe that there are super tasters, tasters and non-tasters. Um, and it's really interestingly, we define those categories of tasters based on prop for a long time. But um, I think some recent research has suggested it's not necessarily true. So some people, like me, I find this compound super bitter, but it doesn't mean that I have a super sense for other compounds. What we prepare here is a sweetness threshold test. So to find out people's uh, sensitivity to sweetness, which varies a lot. Um, and in a way, it's a simple test, but it's very interesting to us because people vary so much in terms of like intake or preference for sweetness. So some people have this sweet tooth, but some people don't. We, we, like, we would think we have understood a lot about this, but in reality it's not. Um, we're still looking for the reason for it. So what we have here is three different concentrations, and what we use to identify the person is a super sensitive person or not. This is like a wine tasting, but with sugar water instead. I take a sip from each of two glasses and have to say which one is sweeter. I'd say that one. Yeah, one. that was that one. This concentration is usually the main threshold for people to detect the sweetness in a, in a beverage. So, yeah. Excellent. I'm average for that test. But for the next one, my true colours start to show.
Are you also going to ask people about what, what motivates them to eat, why they eat, you know, are, that thing of are they eating for pleasure, for hedonism, or are they yes. motivated by something else? Yes, start finding out people's individual differences in food choice, so what makes them to choose certain things or amount of certain food, yeah. It is a kind of a computer game we could treat it as. Um, it's called the Implicit Association Test. What it does is to ask people to respond to high-fat or high-sugar food and at the same time respond in positive versus negative words. So the words I associate with pictures of high or low-sugar food and how quickly I choose those words... These give an insight into what I really like. So it says my score is 0.7, which suggests a strong automatic preference for high sugar food compared to low sugar food. Yep, I've got a sweet tooth. But not everyone does. You would be surprised to see some people would get a minus 0.7. Yeah, and they're suggesting they're really interested in low sugar food. And one other uh, behavioural task that we do is using eye tracker. So I've got the special tracker glasses on, so they're going to be able to follow where my pupils go. Is that what they're going to do? Yeah. And what's even more interesting thing is we can see the pupil dilation. So when people like a particular kind of food, um, their pupils really dilate, and you could see the excitement just through measuring the distance. Yeah. It's a kind of subconscious reaction of your body that you couldn't even say in a questionnaire. For example, you couldn't say, oh yeah, usually when I see chips, my bubbles are really delighted. So with this kind of device, we can measure that. And so that's interesting to see the body reaction. Oh, so this time there's potato chips and popcorn. (laughs) (laughs) This time, folks, there is real food. (laughs) And since you've offered them to me, I might have one. Mm. Deliciously salty. Mm. Mm, I think you're not alone. I think (laughs) chips is always the popular food. (laughs) Thanks, May. A big thanks to May Peng from the Food Sciences Department at the University of Otago and to PhD student Rachel Genius. And the tests I tried are just part of a much larger study. It includes neuroimaging participants to see what's going on in their brain when they see food like cakes and potato crisps. I'm Alison Balance, and this Our Changing World podcast first aired on RNZ on the 11th of October 2018. To find out more about this podcast, check out our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. There are plenty of podcasts there to keep your ears happy, and lots of eye candy as well. If you'd like to hang out with us, you can do that virtually, We are on Facebook and Twitter as RNZ Science. And you can subscribe to us at your favourite podcast provider. If you're able to rate and review us there, then we'd really appreciate that. It helps people to find us. Word of mouth is good too. Tell your friends about us. Here's some word of mouth recommendations for you for new stuff from RNZ's podcast team. The Suffrage Podcast Beyond Kate explores the 125 years since women got the vote in New Zealand. And Are We There Yet? is packed with helpful parenting advice. That's me for now. Thanks for listening. Matewa. 
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.